It's greenwashed with Jaspreet Bapurai and Don Nicholson on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Well, it's Paul Brennan from Reality Check Radio back with you again to introduce two voices and names that you will hear um, going forward on Reality Check Radio. That is Jazzpreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson. And for more on the backstory of Jazzpreet and Don, take a look at our website at realitycheck.radio. If you've been following in this space, you've probably heard those names before. And if you're new to Reality Check Radio and you're checking us out, these are names you will hear as part of our mix of contributors and hosts going forward. It's an exciting week. Uh, it's our first week. And uh, I want to introduce to our audience now Jaspreet and Don. Hi, guys. Nice to meet you. Hey, Paul. Great to meet you too, Paul. Okay, so the show is called Greenwashed. Who hit on that name? <laughs> well, we went around, a bit around in uh, circles, didn't we, Don, about what shall we call this? Yeah, we did. And um, while we um, know what greenwashed is, we're hoping our audience does as well. We feel greenwashed uh, every day. So we're hoping that we can expose the greenwashing and uh, and the deception of that uh, and many other things in the next uh, weeks and months ahead. Because, um, you know, some of us have been living this stuff for many, many years and it's probably been, been under the radar for most New Zealanders. Yeah. The word, and as So the word deception is a strong one. Well, it is because, uh, you know, greenwashing is uh, around perhaps deception. There may be uh, some cause to believe the uh, the bylines of the advertising agencies around sustainability and all the rest of it. Uh, but there's also, um, there's also a reason to question some of the perhaps disingenuous uh, labels that uh, advertising companies are, right, are getting away with and companies are getting away with. Sorry, Jazzpreet, I sort of jumped in over the top of you there. Carry yeah, on. And, and green is a colour we are seeing a lot around, but I somehow seem to think it should be replaced by red, that green is actually a lot, a lot like red. Literally everywhere we look around, there's companies, you know, hawking their green credentials. There's the new green deals. There is green agendas. And as we both know it, and as do many of our listeners they're anything but green. They're completely unsustainable. So what better name than Greenwash to expose what's going on? Well, um, the weekend just gone, uh, the Green co-leader, James Shaw, is uh, headlining. He's saying the Green Party will only accept the strongest possible climate action from parties that wanted support in forming a government after the upcoming election. And I guess the message is really... Um, directed at Labour there, but the others. And uh, they say, or he says, the stakes are too high. What do you make of those comments? And it's election year. Um, you can see how things possibly are being set up. Well, I'll take that. Uh, it's it's easy to say those words. It's easy to um, get people to buy into them because you put the fear of the future into people. But the reality is a different uh, side of the coin. And uh, if you actually ask New Zealanders to quantify what they can do and what the cost of that doing will be, there's um, no answer because no one knows. Um, Net Zero 2050 is completely uncosted. Uh, in the States, uh, they're talking 50 trillion, uh, about 200, just under $200,000 for every citizen in the state. So I imagine it's very similar here. And the change to the temperature will be minuscule, be almost un unmeasurable. 
So um, is it about the temperature? Is it about a warming planet or is it about something else? And I think something else is where we're headed. Absolutely. We saw the Auckland Council last year release an uncosted uh, transport plan and all of these that are going on. Much of these, when you look around, are the figures are mind-boggling. We cannot afford them. And why should we be even going down that path? We have been sort of herded around this path to believe that no matter what the cost, we need to be doing something, no matter what the cost. And as inflation begins to bite, it's going to be time for a reality check on this one. Reality check, I like it. Um, I'm just thinking, you know, what sort of battle force needs to be uh, brought to bear on this. Um, I just reminded catching up with a daughter of mine recently and we we're having a chat. She'd recently come back from overseas and we got on to climate. And, and she said, she asked me, um, you know, do you know that there's a climate crisis? To which I said, we've got an aircraft flying over at the moment. To which I said, where did you hear that word crisis? Is that your word? So this is what we're dealing with, right? Absolutely, we're dealing with it. Um, the wording is is critical and the constant um, use of terms like crisis or they use the term unprecedented uh, rainfall or unprecedented heat wave or unprecedented drought. I mean, it's just constantly tormenting people and you get a bit sick of it because the reality is a different side of that. Um, so we... At a, a youngsters are getting a dose of unreality. I'll give an example. Uh, when I was uh, in, in the 1960s, there was Muro testing for um, nuclear, um, you know, nuclear testing of Muro mm. in the Pacific. And I had a school teacher that educated me to believe that tomorrow I wasn't coming to school because I was going to be um, basically cooked in my bed that night. And it genuinely had me scared, and I, I just draw the parallel. That's what's happening today. We've we put the fear of any future into many children and many adults as well, actually, and many adults are using it as a tool to control uh, the, the narrative as well. So, look, it's 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 nasty, and when you actually hear uh, – I was in the company of a politician, on an MP on Friday night, and when she talked about the anxiety in society – uh, especially in our children, it's not unrealistic to understand how that's become uh, or come about. I mean, the constant bombarding and tormenting of these people with with partial or half-truths or, or falsities is just wrong. And I hope we can expose it, Paul. Cheers, Preet. As, as you, you know, you were both talking about, you, about your daughter and the dawn of his younger days, the younger generation has particularly been used as, uh, as Leonard would call it, useful idiots. We have seen this in the climate marches. We have seen this in the school curriculums. We have seen this with councils across the country, many of them declaring climate emergencies because school kids came along and told the mayor. So they have always been used. And climate crisis, climate emergency, and the word emergency is being used to do away with a whole lot of consultation, that should happen when they are trying to control our lives to such a such an extreme degree. But it's not happening. Just complete brainwashing or brainwashing. This, um, you know, young people and the role they play in this. I mean, you think of Greta Thunberg there. And when she first came on the scene, 
Um, you know, she was almost a, an object of worship by adults, kind of in our age range, broadly. And it kind of reminded me as, as some sort of cult of youth. Um, you mentioned um, useful idiots, uh, Jaspreet. Are they being used, or do you think there's something deeper than that, that that adults are thinking in a way that, uh, how would you describe it, in some kind of fantasy world where you've got 16-year-olds who have only been on the planet for a short time, have no have no long-term no uh, comprehension yeah and... yet yeah, yeah, they're, they're kind of elevated to a, a a point of worship it's it's weird very weird and speaking of greta the image that comes to my mind is her being arrested in was it february yeah. not too long ago a few weeks back and you just saw her there is four policemen giggling she's literally giggling as she's carried away world media is photographing her and they take her around to the corner of the building, put her down. Someone comes and hugs her, and everyone is chanting Greta. That pretty much is a snapshot of our world today. There is logic left the building a long time ago. And children, I'm I'm the mother of young children. My kids are five and just turned eight. To see what this is happening is criminal. We are talking of putting kids into such anxiety I mean, what Dawn was speaking of, I'm sure what kids are being subjected to today is far more. We had the the other Green MP, the Mexican gentleman, why can't I remember his name? Ed, I'll skip it. He was talking of eco-anxiety counseling for New Zealand schools. They don't care. They know exactly what they're inflicting on the young. More money to be made. <laughs> well, Policy officers... Eco-anxiety counsellors, it goes on. And Paul, you used the term cult. Uh, the climate cult is alive and well. And uh, as a person that studied this since uh, probably 1995, especially 1998, when I became, when I became involved in Federated Farmers Nationally, um, and it was considered the leader of the fight against ridiculous taxes in 2003 when the tractor drove up the steps of Parliament and there was a big protest, Um you know, I've I've made some statements that uh, I look back on, and think, was I so wrong? And uh, actually, I don't think I was wrong on any of them uh, today. Uh, and one in particular, I said when I left Wellington in 2011, was um, that climate politics and climate policies were the world's greatest job scheme ever devised hmm. by bureaucracy. But I forgot to talk about the crony capitalism that's uh, linking in with that. And uh, so today we're. We've, we've tied ourselves up in knots over this fallacious argument about um, um, warming. And I'm not, you know, I accept warming uh, and climate change and climate variation is alive and well. No, no, no issue. Uh, but it's, it's who's the cause? What is, what is the root cause of all this? I mean, we've moved about one and a half degrees since industrialization, since about 1850. Um, it's, it's minuscule, the changes that occur. Um, and to have, for instance, carbon dioxide, the fertilizer of life, to be uh, deemed the bogeyman, uh, it's just it's just crazy stuff. But we, we've bought into this narrative, and the biggest one for farming is we've bought into the narrative that methane is such a deleterious um, gas. And, of course, um, now we're trying to expose that it just can't be. It's a physical impossibility. So we hope to expose this in the next months and ahead in, in this reality check radio slot. So what's happened 
too, because the farmers always are considered, you know, um, the folk who are in touch with the land because they're on the land, um, normally conservative, and they have to think ahead. I mean, Jasper, you do that every day. Um, they seem to have, what's the word, given in? Um, they're just bending with the wind because it's easier that way. Uh, where is farming at in all of this? Um, I, is there a is there a silent majority that you know if the if the the bear is prodded uh, too much will wake up and and start asserting themselves? You mentioned the um, I think it was someone called Ardern who drove the tractor up the steps of Parliament that time. Um, <laughs> very memorable. Uh, you kind of don't see that you know um, in your face stuff anymore. So where where is the rural community? I suppose specifically in New Zealand, but we hear about what's happening to farmer groups in other countries, the Netherlands particularly. Have they gone soft? Are they just keeping their heads down? What's going on? I'll speak to the New Zealand perspective here. And, you know, as uh, I came here in 2009, so been farming for 14 seasons, that's all we came here to do. Now, we have been so co-opted, so completely compromised we have industry levy funded bodies as well as advocacy bodies. These bodies are the ones that are supposedly going to speak on our behalf. We fund them to do so, very generous amounts. And within those, as uh, more recently I've seen, they have created, they've called champions of various issues, be it a climate champion or XYZ champion. Within farmers, they have picked up people who are now going along and literally if I may go to that point, making them champions of their own demise while the rest watch on. This is what is happening. And I come from an agrarian community in India. Farming is a lifeblood. And it is like horses for courses. The same thing is happening in India in slightly different way. But, you know, we've got very few farmers here and large swaths of land. India is the opposite small land holdings and millions of farmers, what it takes the push of a pen here to do. It takes a massive, you know, quelling of democracy there. So the pen is mightier than the sword. And New Zealand is using legislation to strangle its own farmers. And farmers, as Don, I think you once said, farmers are being cooked and we are paying for a noose around our own necks being co-opted completely by our own uh, so-called advocacy bodies. Yeah, well, there's there's a fine line between all of this, of course, uh, but but at, at the pinnacle of it, you're right. The um, the bureaucracy, you just think you've ticked the you've, you've you've complied with whatever they've asked you to, and they find something bigger to comply with. So it's never we can never make them happy, and this has been um, a growing. Um, ethos since probably the RMA was enacted in 1991, but more um, this century when the Fonterra Cooperative was formed in 2000 or 2001, it seemed that farming was fair game to, to the bureaucrats. And it doesn't matter where we look, it's never good enough. 2008, uh, there was a minister, Nick Smith, brought back the idea with a, with a guy, Salmon was his name, from Norway, the New Way Collaborative Model. That's how we're going to operate. We're going to use the word collaboration everywhere. Well, if you collaborate with fact, that's okay. But if you collaborate with uh, coercion and by coercion, 
uh, knowing full well that you're, you're actually overstepping the mark, and that's what's happening in lots of instances in our regional councils, um, then we've got a problem. So the word collaboration has been used as a nice word, uh, but in fact it's anything but nice. Uh, very hard to explain in a few minutes, but around this country, um, uh, between councils and government, the word collaborate came out uh, in spades since about 2008 and I think we're paying the price and of course in the Netherlands um, the, the farmers there that are rebelling have, have just said doesn't matter what they do it's never good enough and so I'd look at upon it now as farmers in New Zealand are suffering a form of political abuse and uh, you know we all want the environment to be as good as it can be we don't want to see people wantonly um, destroying the environment but you know, we also have pushed owner operators out and there's now uh, less farmer operators in New Zealand. Uh, it's easier to control less people than more if you're a regulator. So uh, having less farmers in New Zealand is not a great thing, uh, uh, no matter how you look at it. Um, I, I sort of really support the owner operator, but we're a long way from that now. Yeah, um, you mentioned Fonterra. I've seen uh, recently a few, um, you know, placards, people holding placards that are very negative towards Fonterra. And I guess uh, by association, the industry sitting underneath that as, you know, the the bit that people understand and see, the presence that they see. Um, do people not realise that we make a lot of money from that and that's essential <laughs> to, you know, have a standard of living and that uh, we need to, eat as well i mean we've got to have food um i don't know about you but bugs ain't going to do it for me never uh, i find it really difficult to understand how people could disconnect from those very basic points incredibly basic fundamental now are you referring to the greenpeace uh this one, Paul? Yeah, yeah maybe that was the... Um, yeah, that was Greenpeace. But, but, um, they were offloading stuff from, they said, flood victims in Hawkesbury and putting it outside Fonterra. I saw those signs, the pink ones that said, big dairy, big floods. Yeah. Which was on Friday. Yeah, this one thing that strikes me again and again in New Zealand about this, it's the younger people. When I look at the Greenpeace activists, when I look at the climate marchers, Many a times I've gone into a group where there is older farmers and most of them, they, they know what's happening. But why am I in New Zealand? A few, a decade and a half ago, my husband and I, we got working visas in New Zealand on the based on the ISSL, the immediate short scale list. And I'm, I'm looking at it from a, probably a wider perspective than you think. But New Zealand had a skill shortage. When we had come, it was in Waikato and I believe Manawatu, where there were skill shortage of workers. Immigration New Zealand extended that entire list of skill shortages in farming is now across the whole country. We came here, entered New Zealand on the basis of skill shortage in that one, got our work visas and moved on to residency. The next generation is not coming into farming. Any room full of people where you go in for meetings or, you know, some sort of uh, political talk, it is white or gray haired. And that's no disrespect to anybody, but that's what it is. The demographic has moved. I have forever found myself uh, surrounded by people who are a good two decades older than me. The younger generation, we have tried hiring locals out here into Atapri where I live, people, school leavers and all. 
No, it, it just doesn't cut it. And I don't blame them either. You look at the school curriculum and so on. It is telling them that farming is destroying the environment. It has the nutrition guidelines have been changed and how bad red meat and eggs is for them. And children are very, very pliable. I see it with my own kids. You tell them the same thing a couple of times and there you have a converted zealot and that's what they're going to parrot out. And that is what has happened. All these activists, be it the anti-coal mining ones, which came to not too far from my neck of the woods in our mines here, who protest the good, clean-burning coal available in Southland and West Coast, but are perfectly happy to have coal shipped in from Indonesia, which is not clean-burning and very dubious labor practices. They've done a number on their heads via the education system. That I I put a lot of blame towards that one. John? But, but of course, uh, Paul, your question was also around economics. We've never, ever been taught in our schools, even when I was at school, how important the primary sector is and exports are to New Zealand. Uh, I know we have imports to make these exports, but in a, in a net sense, sorry, in a, in a gross sense at the moment, um, our, our primary sector exports are 81% of our total exports and worth about $55 billion. Now, when I left Wellington in 2011, they were barely half that. So the growth in um, value has been significant in the last uh, 15, 20 years. The productivity out of farms is, is exemplary, but we're never taught. And I know my grandchildren are not being taught about the benefit of farming. And, and I used to, in my speeches, quite often introduce a, a subject like this. Um, the environment um, gives up everything for us. It's the genesis of our economy, whether it's the land, the sea, or the scenery. And I and I get no no one sort of saying yes or no to that. You wouldn't get any murmur of agreement. Uh, and I, then I'd say, well, there's no protein in a silicon chip, mm. and um, you couldn't get people humoured by that either. So my issue is, uh, people really don't know about economics. Now I'm not an economist, but you know, I do understand how you put bread on the table and uh, or food on the table. And um, we just uh, have become so distant and so disconnected from that reality. And I blame, I, you know, why aren't we teaching basic economics in our school? Yeah, it's, it sounds like we're living in a sort of like a, well, we aren't, we're not, uh, people here. But like like a, a parallel sort of universe almost where everything magically appears. A unicorn arrives on the scene with uh, unlimited uh, everything for, for anyone who wants it. And, you know, no one cares that it, it came from some something or someone had to do some work to do it. Uh, as I'm hearing you speak, I'm, I'm, I'm really fearing now for our future because it's, it's, it sounds like it's gone so far. And they have a plan for our future, don't they? Own nothing and be happy. And it's amazing how much of the younger generation has signed up for it. And, you know, if that fills your boots, you want to live in a tiny apartment or a tiny house or something, do it. But to imply that all of us can just go along and it doesn't matter. This morning's headlines were uh, a tussle between the medical uh, spokesperson who is saying that we are not going to be carrying out more than 50% of the emergency cancer surgeries needed. And that was being countered by Health New Zealand. I forget what they've renamed themselves. But they are saying, no, we are doing over 73%. 
we've reached a stage in this country where they are going to now debate who has which cancer patient can we afford to treat and which we can't. But yet we have literally billions of dollars to throw at a problem that does not exist, not to the quantum that they would like us to believe. Where are we living? Seriously, it's an upside down world. Well, I... Well, I made a statement years ago that if throwing more money at health and education and police will fix things, then why hasn't it? Um, you know, so it's sort of in, in sync with what you're saying, Jasper. It's it's it seems to be we're middle managed to uh, to extreme, and the 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 real stuff that should happen at, at, in the operating theatres just isn't being um, delivered to the level you'd need. Now, I I've got no ability to um, delve into that um, much. But I do know, for instance, uh, just moving on, that, for instance, rural crime is um, is appalling at the moment. For the first time in uh, 65 years living in the same place, uh, our property's been invaded twice in the last 12 months by pee-addled people. And it seems that the police are hamstrung. Um, you get a smack on the uh, wrist with a wet bus, bus ticket sort of stuff. And uh, speaking to one of the very hard-working detectives, um, in the end, I got out of one of them that he just said, "Well, the judiciary just isn't isn't doing what we we need them to do, which is get it getting tough on crime. We just need to be tough on crime. I mean, rural security is is if you can't run a farm without the threat of people coming through the back gate and, and taking your, your property, we're living in a pretty strange state, and that's where we're headed, where we are actually right now. So you talk about health, I talk about crime." Um, and we've talked about education. We've covered the big three and uh, growing more money at it, um, allowing for population growth and inflation. And we've still got people saying there's never enough. Um, but what you do, don't you, in those various areas you just talked about, when you start breaking social contracts that have been there for a long time, I mean, we, we're prepared to pay our taxes to get, and we know we can't shoot totally for the moon on health because you know, there's X amount of us. We have so many resources, though plenty has been spent on other stuff recently, which probably could have created a whole new health system in terms of that expenditure. It was in the billions and billions. But when you when you break social contracts, you're really in dangerous waters, aren't you? You really are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, I'm. Uh, yeah, it's scary, the- even. The, there's so many things that um, elements to all of that, Paul. And I, yeah, as you as you started talking about that, I started thinking of the extreme expense since 2017 that that has been put over your head, my head, Jasper's head. Uh, 1999, the crown debt or borrowings per person was ten thousand dollars, and of course the population was what about four million. We're now over five billion. Sorry, uh, sorry, million. But yeah, million. Uh, we're now at five million. Um, but in 2017, the crown debt per man, woman, and child was twenty thousand uh, dollars. The last five years, it's gone up to thirty thousand dollars. So we're we've added ten thousand dollars per head under the uh, Labor government and coalition of 2017, 2020, and 2020 to 23. So yeah, social contracts. I'm not sure where we begin and end because um, these these people don't seem to care. Um, as much as they purport to care. Yeah, but they've all got great health care. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably right. And, you know, I've as, as a mid-60s, um, I've got my own private medical insurance that I've had since I was 20. 
never ever cancelled it, never shirked my responsibility to pay and, and sort of try and get access to private health care when I need it. Um, and the cost of that is hellish. It is now that we're in the mid-60s, it's just horrible, the cost. But, you know, we, we want to be looked after. Um, I know that sounds like an elitist way of thinking about it, but uh, it's one of the prime expenses in my business at the moment. My wife and I have, have our health medical insurance. And then you talked about crime and, you know, it's rural crime, it's city crime. I mean, um, a shooting in Auckland is a daily occurrence now. It really is. And uh, quite a few of them are in public where members of the public could get caught in crossfire, things like that. Never used to happen. So you're looking at vigilantism, aren't you? I mean, what what other way is there of defending your property in the end? If If the police can't do their job, the judiciary has what planet they're on i don't know they don't understand what crime is anymore uh what are you going to do just sit there and watch all your stuff get taken no you're not and in fact the vigilante stuff will um, action will happen uh as as rural people we now do use technology like uh instant uh facebook pages and or social media pages and um and texts and, and the like to get to your neighbors quickly because ringing the police is often too slow um and you know you're never going to get your property back. Uh, so it is about being more self-determined uh, than ever before. And I dare say we saw some media recently about in the Hawke's Bay um, floods, uh, how there was the need to have better security and the locals were taking it into their own hands and good on them. There's nothing more frustrating than having your, your own property that you've worked for years to have um, being taken uh, advantage of by by criminals and um, good on those people up there for putting their putting their teams together. And uh, then, of course, there is um, the media. And uh, I, I was looking at a couple of screenshots that I saw of um, from you, Jaspreet, a day or two ago, and they were, I think, of a rural um, publication. You know, sort of little newspaper. And you open the the page there, and there it is, full page. Go get your booster. The reason I bring that up is because if we if we've got trouble understanding motivations in the media and the quality of reporting, fair and balanced, and all that sort of stuff, then that's another thing that has to be worked against or offset, isn't it? Because you know, uh, if people really don't know what's going on and it's all just scrambled up in their head. Um, Voices like yours and ours will always be seen as a sort of like a potentially a fringe voice, you know, rabbit hole and all of that sort of stuff. I just say that we're better informed, actually, and have a a better view of things. But the average person thinks, you know, they're doing okay for information. What do we do about that? We talk, Paul. And we we don't let ourselves be silenced when stuff like, you know, all these... uh, nice little boxes they would like to put us in conspiracy theorists climate deniers racist and all of this that's happening and i honestly i am so surprised to reach the stage in new zealand where i can say stuff that friends of mine white friends of mine cannot say even three drinks down we have actually reached a stage where they have so polarized us so polarized us that everyone is literally minding the p's and q's and adults and as human beings, mankind, the most fundamental right we have is the ability 
to speak our minds because that is what is it it's an opinion you don't like it as my mom would say don't like it don't react just move on pretend you didn't hear but we seem to have lost that ability i have seen and i had never thought we would come to this because childhood in india growing up in india your politicians they divide you on religion that's a very major weapon for politicians in india and suddenly out here it's this whole polarization of say the townies versus rural your uh, national supporters versus labor employers against employees vaccinated versus the unvaccinated this deep divide is extremely dangerous many of us i don't know about you gentlemen but i have faced people the ones who knew me for decades suddenly no longer speaking to me and that is what it's been it reminds me of the very first days of the when the first lockdown happened it was like don't speak to your neighbors don't do this you walk this much away and slowly slowly over this time the media narrative as has i put a massive amount of the blame of where we are at today as a country as a society on the media and the way it has been used to completely push they were willing to do it propaganda. they were willing they they were willing to go along with it mm, yeah that's why and there's no exonerating them from this it is in no small part to their contribution why we've reached the stage we have hmm. yeah well look i missed some of that there was a bit of an audio issue going on from my my reception in the historic team um but you know the public public interest broadcast fund 55 million i think it's now more like 107 million i stand to be corrected i mean on top of all the public broadcasting money that's uh, given to the likes of radio new zealand television uh, new zealand and and the like and mari tv and mari radio um i found that extra money abhorrent and the buying off of the media just seems to um have grown legs and since that fund was established and when i saw the prime minister uh on one of her, her media um stand-ups or media conferences say she was the single source of truth in fact she 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 repeated it and then later on she talked about the two classes of citizens i knew the damage was complete um in her head and uh yeah we've got to regain control it's it is when you analyze this this discussion it's all about taking back control yeah taking back control i listened to radio new zealand yesterday morning and uh, sad to hear um, about sam neil and his his battle but kim hill was interviewing him and they just absolutely pilloried anyone that supported donald trump now i don't like donald trump's style i mean he's a new yorker and invercargill wouldn't go down well with that brusque sort of style but the guy um he's trying to get america back for americans um that's what i want for new zealand i want new zealand for new zealanders not separate uh sort of um entities like maori versus um the rest uh we've got to be getting new zealand back for new zealanders and that's the mission well i tell you if you were a fan of donald trump or even thought that he might have something and you were in radio new zealand back in the day because i was there i remember you know there's the door see you later um even kim hill can have trump derangement syndrome so <laughs> you know and she probably thinks she's really smart so iq doesn't necessarily um determine that much in the end um i think that um 
what you'll be talking about and bringing up in your programs is going to be essential listening. And I think that um, uh, the audience will grow for that because people do feel it. They know it. And this is the thing. And I'd like to get your view on this. That silent majority, you really hope it's there. Boy, you pray it's there. Um, and what does it take for that silent majority to feel confident enough to actually say something? Because it seems to me that what's holding them back is this fear of being, you know, held up to ridicule, embarrassed, shamed, all those things that people hate. Um, they have their private thoughts, thought crimes, but, uh, you know, they're not prepared to say it. And hopefully we, we can help them in that if we can give them permission, that silent majority, to, to talk. Do you think it's there? And what, what sort of limit do they have before they'll sort of cross over the line and go, oh, look, I've had enough of this. Screw this blah, 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 and speak out. Do you think it, it can happen? And what would the threshold be? Well, I, th I think it's getting close. Uh, and yesterday I read an article about, um, for instance, climate. Again, we'll go back to that. And uh, how many people really do um, consider uh, climate change and climate policies the number one, you know, the, the most, as they say, the existential threat um, and it wasn't as dominant as you would think. In fact, with the doubters and the sort of swingers uh, on that question, it gets to into the mid-60%. Uh, this is an American study, by the way. And um, I imagine it would be perhaps 50-50 in New Zealand at the moment. But I think Jaspreet talked about it earlier. Cost of living, um, the reality check, to use that pun, um, is coming. And uh, I... Uh, I think that will be the turning point. You know, the, the damage that's been done to this economy in the last uh, three to five years, the spilling of, of your money, your borrowed money against your name to stimulate the economy, to create mass inflation, um, the labour shortages that are now around. There's a whole lot of things coming down the pike. And, uh, you know, that all sounds negative. And, you know, I, I actually like getting up in the morning. I'm not a negative person, really. Uh, but things are, um, things are not well. And I think that will be the turning point. And I think that um, voices like ours will get traction. You can't have, you know, I was number three on the act list in 2011, uh, the, the debacle of an election that was. Um, but um, you can't have parties that are deemed conservative uh, on, on the right not being supportive of what we want uh, and we stand for. Um, and so let's hope that even the ACT Party can really stand staunch and hopefully get other people, other political parties with, with them. I mean, right now there is not a tissue paper between Labour and National on policy. I mean, I just, I just despair at that. So the influence we've got to have has got to be significant. I, what is the threshold? You know, going back to university, Maslow's theory of needs, if any one of you gentlemen remember that pyramid, on the base of the pyramid was your basic needs of food, water, shelter. Then came safety and health. And after that came stuff like love and self-actualization, self-esteem, and so on. We have reached a stage where we are basics are not getting fulfilled. We have a lot of people, a lot more than the government would like to think, or like to publicly announce struggling to put food on the table. In some places, the brazen uh, crime rates we are seeing, not just because of the judiciary issues, but there's actually desperation out there. And it is not going to take 
too long for people to actually see that, you know, the buck stops here. We either need to get put a house in order, otherwise aspiring towards all these other needs is not going to cut it. I mean, how many times have I spoken to someone and they talk about the climate crisis and everything? And I say, you know, that graph you're talking about, it's covers just about the last 180 years. Yeah, but that's what's happened. Do you know the earth has been around for 5 billion years? Do you know that's just a tiny blip? And do you know there have been previous warming periods far more greater? And suddenly you realize, but our education system has done an absolutely shoddy job, aided by the media. And this debt that Don gave us such eloquent numbers about, it is the chickens are coming home to roost now. There's just so far you can avoid, you know, looking at uh, what do you need for your day-to-day life. Once the basics get hard, there's a whole lot of people going to wake up in a hurry and smell the roses. And there's the institutions. I spoke, and, and people will be hearing this interview in the next day or two with Ian Wishart, who's been in the news, and uh, he's done a, a dive. And it wasn't even a very difficult job for him because the information is there if you want to go looking for it into the historic sort of... Um, uh, using uh, low barometric pressure as a sort of like a, the the key to it, searching out you know in the last um, well back into the eighteen hundreds I think mid eighteen hundreds um, the you know the storms and the the events the weather events that happened pre nineteen seventy nine which is where Niwa's data <laughs> cut off now <clears throat> so you know people have uh, faith in institutions Niwa looks good they have spokespeople who. Well, they sail around in ships and go and drill ice cores in places and, and do all that. People trust, you know, that follow the science thing. And here they are. And and I think Ian will tell us himself that they haven't questioned his data at all. They haven't they haven't even talked to that. What they've done is they've tried to sort of make out that there's been some muddle up in the data that's available to the public and the data that's available to them. Clearly, um, well, we could say that there, there does seem to be some sort of manipulation by omission um, to promote the current narrative. So, I mean, you mentioned judiciary before, Don. I mean, you know, our institutions, they're failing, aren't they? They're failing in front of our eyes. Yes, they are, the way I understand it. And I'm certainly not university educated, but I um, I agree that uh, our institutions have let us down because uh, you know, there's so many people who use legislation to... Um, to ingratiate their lives, and uh, if the institutions can garner funding to to create a certain narrative, uh, that's what's happening. Uh, interestingly, I used to make a statement about, for instance, water quality uh, data, um, and where's the empirical evidence about water quality? Often, and uh, you couldn't find stuff that uh, you needed to find, say, pre two thousand. And it seems convenient that 2000 was around when Fonterra was formed. But you ask a regional council to give some empirical evidence for what the water quality was like in 1950, and they couldn't give it to you. And yet, those of us that have lived long enough know uh, there has been massive improvement in water quality and because uh, point source discharges were supposedly uh, contained. Uh, but we couldn't find uh, uh, the data we were after. And in fact, uh, it was just dirty dairying. Uh, that was what it was all about. And of course, then they came, and I know we've changed from climate to, to water, but then they came with this concept called cumulative effect. Uh, originally, it was point source, as I said. Uh, so you, a pipe coming into a waterway, you could measure what was coming out of it. But then 
cumulative effect under the RMA meant that everything from the headwater to the sea was in the same box. It didn't matter whether you're guilty or not for being a polluter um, or not. You were all in the same um, same regime, and of course, you were rated as such through your local authority. And you know, this you talked about the institutions breaking down. There has been a corruption of the institutions, no doubt about it. And of course, uh, the long march through the institutions uh, being a, a Gramsci, um, Antonio Gramsci line. Uh, I thought I used to think it was Karl Marx who said that, but apparently I was wrong. Rodney Hyde corrected me. Um, uh, <laughs> That, uh, you know, the long march through the institutions, it's right in front of us. It's right here in spades. And it's, it's that That uh, Neva example kind of makes me angry as a parent because um, here, here, here's this fear being generated, and it is fear. And um, we, we know how fear works, especially in the last few, few years. It works really well. Um, they know that they haven't included all the data. They probably know, because they're scientists, that there have been – exceptional weather events through history, no doubt about it, um, whether they've gone and looked at the specific data or not. Maybe they don't feel they need to. But they're prepared to generate that fear, particularly in young people. And, you know, we don't know how how impactful that psychological damage is. It could be, it could be really bad, um, especially mixed with social media and all the stuff that layers on top. Yet they're prepared... To do that, they're prepared to throw our young people under a bus, actually. I have had a very narrow escape in New Zealand. It was 2011, and I decided I needed a degree here. And I went to one of the open days at a university close to me, where we were working then. And uh, I've done my degree in accounting, ultimately from Macy University, extramurally. But prior to that, I went over to this open day. And uh, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes was a bit about accounting and other stuff. The rest was about mental wellness, sexual wellness providers, budgetary services, pastoral care, and so on. I came home. I was 30 at the time, so obviously older than, you know, many of the people there. And I told my husband, I said, I don't want a babysitter. I am not doing full time. And we didn't have kids then. And money was like, just go and knock it out. He says, and you know, we'll get it. You can get it out of the way before we, we're going to have kids in a couple of years. And I'm like, nah, couldn't be over it. And I ultimately did it extramurally. I shudder to think what the state of those institutions is a decade later. This is me at that time coming from India. I'd been here two years, 2009 to 2011. And I just couldn't get my head around that what are these so-called really great universities doing? But maybe I could see it, you know, as someone not long uh, off the boat here and coming from an Indian perspective, I could see it what many others don't. I don't know. I can only conjecture. Well, I think we've started a good chat and I think um, you guys are so informed. You um, have so many things that I'm sure you want to touch on. Um, it's been really nice meeting you and sort of like uh, introducing you guys to to the audience. And um, if I stay too much longer, I'll just get madder and madder <laughs> and start saying more in your face things that might have to be edited out. I don't know because it does actually it does actually make me angry because um, you know this it wasn't too long ago that this place was a different place and, and seemed to feel quite good and we were doing quite well and. We're feeling proud of ourselves and we were making it in the world and and stuff like that. And, and I know we're not the only ones. This is something that's present in many places. 
But but the more I think about it, the more my blood boils. So uh, it might be a good idea for me just to withdraw myself at this point, let you guys carry on. And um, really looking forward to hearing what um, you cover on the uh, shows ahead, on the Greenwashed show. I think it's going to be a popular show on Reality Check Radio. So thanks for letting me drop in to the start of the conversation. And uh, I'll be listening with interest to what you guys carry on talking about in this uh, episode and future episodes. So thanks. Thank you, Paul. Thanks, Paul. And Paul spoke about being really angry. Do you do you get really angry, Don, at the state of what's happening? Or I I, I don't. I'm less angry than I than I've been in years uh, because I actually see things clearly. In my opinion, uh, the way I like to talk about stuff. I'm not encumbered by anyone else now uh, other than my family. I don't have to be answerable to um, a board of directors. I don't have to be answerable to the members of Federated Farmers. Um, I'm a free spirit. And um, as my byline on this show says, that um, simplicity and truth. And uh, that's what I believe in. It's not hard. That None of this stuff is hard. You just have to, to... seek the truth, make sure it is the truth and it's not uh, not a bit uh, weasel wordish and uh, and run with it. And so once you exorcise all the, the, the bad stuff out of your 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 thinking and you know, and your and your own confidence um, where, where you are trying to be respectful to everybody else, um, you can actually um, be be clear in your thought process. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And I I think for me, channelizing this sort of navigating what we've come to, because as I was saying, when I landed on these shows 14 years ago, as Paul was saying, you know, peaceful country, everything ran smoothly. And to suddenly from that state come here and I time it again, I get flashbacks of India that, you know, I've seen this before. We are heading down the very, very same path that I thought I'd left behind. Amazing. Well, tides come in and, and go out, and things it, you know things evolve. And I'm not a, as negative as a lot of people are about. Um, for instance, I have family saying there's just too many people on the planet. Um, I don't, I don't, I have that argument. I actually believe in the evolution of ideas and um, mankind. Uh, you know, no, that's not a pronoun we're allowed to use now. Um, mankind. That's <laughs> I'm supposed to say. I'm not sure okay. what I'm supposed to say. Um, Uh, you know, effectively, um, we've evolved with a greater population. The evolution of ideas happens better with a larger population. Hence, we've got stuff today um, that had we only had a, let's say, a billion people on the planet, we wouldn't have uh, have for many hundreds of years. But the the multiplying of what, to 8 billion people, uh, has made a lot of uh, innovation available to us all and some of it most of it's really good i mean heck i think um we're living in great times right now except they could be so much better um and it is around for me the diminution of property rights was probably the biggest one where as we talked about earlier the uh the bureaucrats are determined to um, break the private property right um for the for the likes of the farmers and they slowly are breaking us down um but yeah, I don't. I'm not as anxious as perhaps I should be because I now am not full time farmer. 
I mean, if I was yes. full-time farming, it would be quite different. And property rights are going down the gurgler. I mean, they began, as you said, from the rural part of New Zealand, but uh, urban New Zealand, significant natural areas, they have, you know, Wellington has designs on a whole lot of urban properties there with the cyclone and pretty much every media uh, narrative after that and every politician, every soundbite they would give has the word adaptation, manage retreat. There's going to be suddenly a whole lot more people being as interested as you don't in property rights, or dare say, dare I say, even more in suddenly retaining property rights. Oh, and that's a huge <laughs> issue. I mean, uh, finally, they are talking about adaptation. I mean, in years gone by, it's always been about mitigation. You just um, got to do um, X, Y, Z. You've got to mitigate. You've got to reduce your emission. You've got to do that. Now it's about adaptation. And and because I've actually realized that they were being a bit disingenuous before. But now um, you and I, uh, as taxpayers and uh, insurance payers, will likely be asked to fund the moving of property from coastal strips to somewhere else. Now, it's not fair. Um, the property right, as you say, was with the owners of those properties and you know they should have been insured um, and, and the like. But just to say we're going to have a wholesale movement of people away from a coastal strip or a floodplain, and you and I should pay for it as well, just it, we just can't mm-hmm. afford that. So adaptation smart, but um, um, you have not see me floodplain. No, no. I mean, the entire West Coast is one big significant natural area. What are they going to be doing there? And you know, how, where exactly are we going to be driving this? Uh, the people, I. Insurance premiums, for one thing, is going to take a big uh, leap, I'm sure, pretty soon. Yeah. Going to be hearing some numbers coming out of that one. And uh, this year's insurance on the farm, I have no doubt. Yes, and of course, uh, if you're an insurer, uh, you know, a company, you'd want the government to be picking up the tab as much as uh, you could make them um, through mm. whatever um, regime the government has for uh, adverse events and things like that. And so as a taxpayer, you're going to get doubly screwed. Um, so I don't know. We've got a wee ways to go on all of this stuff. Uh, you know. It seems other countries are ahead of us, though, seeing the scenes coming out of Holland, coming out of uh, Belgium, Brussels, even France last uh, this last weekend just gone. Europe seems to be a bit more on the move than New Zealand. Yeah, that's true because uh, they see the the stuff that New Zealand uh, uh, agencies, like we talked about earlier, don't want to see. They see the agendas from the EU, the um, UN, the WEF, uh, all all in play. Um, point of difference, though, in in Holland uh, or the Netherlands, they are being talked about. They are being what's being talked about is uh, remuneration or compensation for takings. But the takings are yeah. all wrong. Like, takings are wrong. But at least they're being offered cash to leave. In New Zealand, mm. New Zealand uh, is expected to get it all for nothing. And the difference mm. is in the European Union, there is subsidies, production subsidies, um, and in New Zealand there is none. So none. New Zealand is being burned at every every corner. New Zealand property owners, farmers, um, and of course, uh, you know. Why is that? Uh, New Zealand doesn't. Seem, seem to be somehow, you know, the lab rats of any sort of global experiment, we seem to be the lab rats here. 
when you look at other countries, wow. it is going on, but a bit more slowly. For us, they can't afford to pay our teachers well enough. There's teachers striking. There's hospital staff disputing the numbers of surgeries they're carrying out as compared to the ministry spokesperson. We don't have money for the basic needs of life, but to throw it somewhere else is, is perfectly fine. We are going to give, I don't know, they're talking of well over 12 billion to give to other countries to reduce emissions. It's just criminal. Yeah, and see, when I learned about this um, this globalist agenda, you know, and and I I think I've talked about it before, but I will repeat it. And uh, in the in the ten years ago, perhaps Sky TV had CNN on, and they had the byline um, "A World Without Borders," and I thought, well, gee, that's great, um, "World Without Borders" for news. You know, I need to know everything that's going on on the planet, and um, great if CNN can do it. But no, when you analyze it, it was never a world without borders uh, in terms of just the news. It was a world without borders and and the national sovereignty of of countries was going to be um challenged as it as it is right now and so yeah i i just i i'm not sure where it all ends up but i do have um a belief that human nature will will uh, rise to the the fore of all of this stuff and we will tackle it um wisely and humanity will all these cycles we've in the past, they have gone on, you know, we come to the brink and we turn around, we mend our ways for a while, learn a few lessons and then go back again, same down the same path. Yeah. Now, the but population, I, I, the yeah, population they're the talking topic. about, we have had a massive increase in the number of residents visas issued in New Zealand. We can't afford to look after, feed, give medical treatment to our own, but somehow looking after our own backyard seems to have gone out of fashion. Well, yeah, and I know you mentioned um, the number of people um, being given visas in recent months, and that, uh, you know, it astounded me, actually. Um, so we need to check that for sure and, and work it through. But, you know, for instance, if you were in um, in the UK or if you were in Sweden, if you were in, uh, you know, Germany and watching the boat people moving across from North Africa, uh, sort of unhindered, un you know, they, they didn't seem to be restricted, uh, even though there seemed to be a lot of authorities trying to, to sort of manage them when they got there. Um, uh, perhaps like the border uh, between Mexico and the States. Uh, what is this all about? Why is, uh, why is the authorities not trying to stop them before they, dis you know, before they leave their own country? It just doesn't make sense. So here's this borderless world, this, this arrogance of these people to think they can come into a new country and and have the rights and uh, of others and create um, perhaps tensions that weren't, weren't there before. And of course, on the other hand, you, un, you, you have to sort of say, well, gee, in their own country, they must be, it must be pretty bad. They need to get out. And isn't that interesting how in the States, they want to go to the free, free world um, uh, called the United States and in, in uh, to get to get out of their um, sort of um, their life that they have and their more well or less advanced countries, and uh, and then they get there and cause problems. Yeah, it makes no sense. I don't I don't get it. But no. hopefully we we can hopefully with this uh, as you point out the new visa holders in New Zealand come with the right idea um, 
they come with the, the willingness to assimilate into New Zealand society, uh, that hopefully we will stop all this nonsense about separate uh, uh, um, uh, ethnicities in this country, especially Maori, and um, and and start to integrate properly. It just makes no sense how we're going at the moment. Co-governance. I would I mean, say yeah. that. I mean, I would say if, that's wishful thinking, Don. The assimilation. Well, it it literally seems that they enjoy diversity for the sheer sake of you know taking off a checkbox, but diversity of thought or opinion is not respected, and that is what's happening. I am seeing many of the institutions currently right now. They have people in power in positions where I would have thought that a natural-born New Zealander would have more affinity, more loyalty, more a sense of doing right by their own land. But those positions are being held by other people. And, you know, call me cynical. I'm a migrant myself. So I have got, uh, I speak my mind on this. There is, there is always going to be a difference there. You look at so many other countries. They don't allow people to stand for certain elections. They don't allow foreigners to buy land and so on. Whereas here we are, within our own country, we are causing the polarization, but yet we are laying out a red carpet for more people to come in who we cannot afford to house, feed, and so on. The It's going to be interesting times ahead. Well, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I, I sense your, your frustration by it. Um, I, yeah, everything to me should be on merit. Yeah, positioning should be on merit. Um, are people from other countries getting priority over over New Zealanders on ethnicity, or even uh, are we doing it to ourselves within New Zealand? Uh, for instance, with um, certain, um, for instance, Maori quotas in broadcasting, it makes uh, it's all divisive stuff. I mean, I have no problem with cultural um, people retaining their own culture, no issue at all. But uh, when you're actually involving yourself in the public uh, sphere, you should be. Um, able to integrate and work as one uh, and 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 those positions should be should be um derived on merit so uh you know i i it's interesting i don't like the taxpayer footing the bill for ethnicity and other issues within the diaspora here from india i have purposefully distanced myself from certain neighbors which I think in some cases my children are also not too happy about because it was a rate pay of funding these diversity things. And I have spoken to others around me and I said, look, if you and if you all were in India, the government would not be stepping in to fund XYZ festival or XYZ, you know, courses or something. Does it feel right? But I don't think many people are thinking to those extents that I am. No, that no, they're not. And and just as a wee um, adjunct to the story, uh, Friday afternoon I walked around in McCargill, um at at length. Um, I haven't done it for years, really. I just have no no need to be um, sort of loitering on the streets of the city. But it's great. It's had a big inner city upgrade, massive reinvestment. You know, years overdue. Uh, but of course, there's reasons for Invercargill's slow demise over the previous fifty or sixty years. The interesting thing to me was I looked up most of the streets that aren't now in the in the main CBD uh, where there is secondhand shops, um, um, agencies that are charities, or 
government agencies that are um, have found a way into to something that they do, or the Southland Polytechnic had um, leased a lot of the buildings. So real enterprise is sort of gone uh, from these peripheral streets, and now it's all about agencies uh, that you and I fund, getting somehow we will fund them, getting a foothold. Um, I don't get that. And of course, we've, as you will know, now that you're a counsellor, there is so many uh, things that are funded uh, through different grant systems. And uh, you know, perhaps it starts as a taxpayer dollar and it gets down through the grant system, or perhaps it's a, from a benefactor, uh, but it gets into, into the community. And of course, I've got a view that that style of, of um, funding everything from other people, you know, using other people's funding to fund what you want to do um, is, is growing uh, almost exponentially in my life. Um, yeah, yeah, well, good on you for walking. I would have preferred to walk the last weekend. There was literally road cones across Invercargill CBD. I went through uh, two dead ends before finally ending up at the coffee shop where I wanted to be. So, yeah, walking might just be the way to go. But oh, those uh, road cones, those road cones, I like the 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 um the virus in New Zealand at the moment, aren't they? They're everywhere. I mean, I don't know why there's so many, but um, they're bred like flies. Mad. I first came to Invercargill, uh, just driving through with my husband, 2011. What was what struck me then, coming from Waikato, was wide open streets. Well, that vision of Invercargill is gone. Now, what I see today, it is just not the same. And I'm hoping my parents, they come this year and they are going to be the ones to remark they were with us on that trip. But as you're saying, there are so many NGOs now, non-governmental organizations and their offices. And I don't recognize them myself, Tom, in Invercargill. And I'm sure Auckland or any other city would be no different. Who are these people? How are they funneling the money from various grants? And I mean, we now have a Kai Collective working here. And I'm sure other councils across the country would also have talking about food security. Well, that's all well and good. But someone tell me, how did a country that produces enough to feed 40 million suddenly start talking about food security for its own? Am I slightly going mad? No, and that's part of the... um sort of I made with dogs breakfast explain it before there's a plethora of these agencies that just find a way to solicit cash from somebody and set up a, an entity um and uh, you know they've, they've been given the chance by someone and it's obviously through local government or central government they're the only two that do devolve um your cash to to these um entities I mean the one that um you talked about the Kai uh I I yeah I, I don't know of it uh, well, but the other one I noticed the other day was um, there was thriving Southland, and um, the budget for that I read somewhere was six or nine million dollars. I thought, how what did that? How did that start up? There it is. Um, it's got people I know there working just fine. I mean, I respect these people; they're intelligent people. But thriving Southland, why do we need another agency? We've got Great South, we've got um, we've got a community trust, we've got. Um, We've got a many trusts with a lot of lot of cash, uh, but there's thriving Southland, and uh, I assume it's around rural mainly. But um, I yeah, wonder how out, out, out of the blocks. 
They were given nine million, I believe, late 2019, just before COVID hit, and now they have a prime, you know, prime real estate uh, holding in in Vicargill. and yeah, that's what you're talking about. That slow creep, and slowly, slowly, we've reached a stage where elections, local or national, do not really matter, do they? It is these agencies that are holding the power and really sort of deciding your destinies. Yeah, it is the slow creep of um, of of socialism. Mm. Um, it's it's just there's no other word for it. Uh, why is that? Is there not enough uh, real people in New Zealand to do real jobs and real investment? And you sort of think, well, there used to be, but now it's um, just as easy for people to find their employment uh, through one of these agencies that is funded. So, yeah, I'm I'm disappointed. By the by, the rise of this, but um, you know, why is it? Is it too hard for people to be in business? And I think that's part of it. Yeah, just in real business, re- real Kiwis doing real stuff. I mean, it's interesting. Only ten years ago, uh, perhaps fourteen years ago, now the now mayor of, of Auckland, a city, Wayne Brown, and I conspired to set up a political party called Real New Zealand. And I mean, I wish we'd done it because it might have been the lead party by now. Um, it's what New Zealanders are crying out for, a dose of realism. You managed to surprise me, Don. I had no idea. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, it is for me, I look at through, a, you know, the United Nations lens and all of these, you guys use the word collaboration, councils and local government. They all prefer to use the word partnership. But for me, seeing all of these NGOs wielding such immense power as the United Nations uh, SDG 17, public-private partnerships in sustainable development coming to life, people are no longer, you might choose, you know, your local government, your national government, but when these partnerships happen, the public is sort of cut out. In a public-private partnership, there is really no public voice at all. They have these workshops, which will be, you know, poorly publicized, held in the middle of a working day with a handful of people, maybe five turning up to a meeting where they have five facilitators, if not more, outnumbering the guests. And suddenly there's that, yep, tick box down, we consulted and boom, there you have it. We are having XYZ trees cut down or we are having more bike lanes or whatever it is. Yep, I've seen it all, Jasper. It, it certainly grew around when I was in Wellington. It, it, it certainly developed and seems to have grown since. And I remember Environment South and having these drop-in sessions um, around water quality and the land, you know, water pl- and land planning. Now, you can have, as I said, collaboration. But if you're going to a drop-in session and you're getting the information dropped on you and you're to agree <laughs> or disagree with it right there and then, um, with no ability to fact check, um, you're li- likely to have been duped, and uh, that's what I believe happened in in the water quality story in Southland. In fact, uh, Federated Farmers Southland developed a a very independent report that showed water quality was not um, as it was purported to be in the media. Um, they shared it with Environment Southland, and Environment Southland buried it. So, you know, forty thousand dollar report sitting on the shelf, no one wanted to see it. So that sort of stuff under the name of collaboration is what happens, and it will be happening nationwide. 
Yeah, I am working on my own little uh, database, Don, as I was telling you, about looking at how many agencies these, you know, NGOs are working in just Southland alone. We are just 2% of New Zealand's population, so uh, 100,000 people. And the amount of do-gooders out here and how fast they you know, and lose they play with public money and uh, the movers and shakers. And I can tell you it's a never-ending process. It's been three, four months. And just every other day, you find something more to add to it. You find something more. And blame it is like for 100,000 people, how many of these non-jobs can you create? We are certainly heading to some sort of world record down here. <laughs> the term non-jobs, I love it. I mean, that was uh, a regular term of mine in Wellington, um, the non-jobs. Wellington is full of non-jobs. They don't, um, they, there's a lot of people believe they turn up at work and do um, a lot of good stuff. And yeah, they, they obviously do what their bosses are telling them to do. But they're in non-jobs. You know, the dead weight loss of government is massive and local government. Um, and so, I, you know, the term do-gooder, I, I didn't, not sure I like it. I mean, there's uh, <laughs> people that do, do good. Yeah, I think we all do good uh, and best best we can. But you're right. There is a um, a group of there's a lot in Southland, um, and you wonder how they got to establish themselves. Uh, clearly, they apply and they get the money given to them. So, is it a good use of money? Um, yeah, that's that's the question. And I've clearly. Um, as I said, I, I value a, a dollar, but once it goes filtered and is filtered through a local government or central government um, coffer, we know we lose that va- the value, the purchasing value of that, and um, or a, a, a fair chunk of it. So uh, that's the problem. And uh, would would South be better off without them? Well, um, I would hate to think what South would be better off with less people and gainful employment. Uh, <laughs> Enough people, um, perhaps. Uh, I, I don't even know the unemployment stats for South, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But you're right, 2% of our populations, up to 14% of our national exports, and um, we've still got this economy that seems to have to have these hand-ups all the time and hands-ups. Yeah, that needs sky collectives and whatever. We are amongst one of the most productive uh, provinces, and here we are setting I- up yet another bureaucracy. Oh, look, and I know um, uh, after this goes to air, uh, we will be pilloried, desperate. Uh, but, um, you know, people that are talk about it, as we talked about earlier, we if people don't talk about it and you let MSN um, scribes uh, take you apart uh, or, or, or create their side of an argument, um, then we will never, ever beat the problems we face. Well, let's let, let them bring it on. I have already been... Uh through this uh, nonsense last year, just before the elections and uh, came through. So I I look forward to seeing what sort of uh, feedback we get. But yeah, it was good chatting today and uh, onwards and upwards from here. Reality check. And and, yeah, sorry to interrupt. I have to say, Jasper, your your effort last year in the the council elections was exemplary and uh, all part of your arm. I mean, I think you brought a new dynamic and uh, I think... The way, I, way I'm reading it, um, you're having an effect. So um, good work. And yeah, sorry to uh, interrupt in your conclusion there, but yeah, I'm no, looking no. forward to Reality Check Radio and Greenwashed. Thank you, Don. I appreciate that. It is the least I can do for the land. Uh, that is that is my home now. And uh, we look forward to tuning in another time and uh, chatting some more.
See you next time. Bye-bye. It's Greenwashed with Jaspreet Bapurai and Don Nicholson on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Peter Williams from 1 o'clock on RCR, Reality Check Radio.